So we're joined today with Ben Cuthbert, who is a PhD student in computational neuroscience at Queen's University. Welcome. Hi. Um, so do you think you could give us kind of an overview of what it is specifically that you're researching right now? Yeah, so I'm in a computational neuroscience lab where we use techniques from engineering, computer science to study the brain. Uh, specifically, I study working memory, which a lot of people will refer to as short-term memory. And uh, I use a combination of experiments and uh, computer modeling to try to understand how that works. Very cool. So what kind of experiments do you do to understand the short-term memory and working memory? Um, so earlier on in my PhD and in my master's, we did a lot of behavioral experiments with humans. So we get people to sit in a chair and uh, remember things on a computer screen, try to make predictions about uh, how that goes down. Um, now, on my current project, I'm working on data from experiments done with monkeys, where we actually have electrodes stuck into certain brain areas and we record the neural activity as they remember things. Wow. So. Do you expect that there will be any like similarities between the ways that monkeys remember things and the ways that humans remember things? Yeah, I mean, the idea with that approach is that these monkeys, we use uh, rhesus macaques. The idea is that their brains are really, really similar to humans, as good as it gets without having an actual human brain. So hopefully they're pretty similar. Wow, very cool. And why do you choose to use monkeys? Like, is it an invasive procedure? Yeah, you can't, uh, you can't stick an electrode into a human brain oh, true. <laughs> and have them do things. Um, there are some exceptions, like uh, sometimes seizure patients or Parkinson patients, things like that. They'll have electrodes in their, in their brains already for stimulation, other purposes, and we can occasionally record from there, but it's really rare, and most of the time we're stuck with either monkeys or mice or another model organism. Right. So how did you get into this whole field of computational neuroscience and... Uh, modeling, you know, the brain. Um, I did my undergrad in life science, thought I wanted to go to med school, and then in fourth year I was fortunate enough to end up in a computational neuroscience lab for my thesis and realized that I loved programming and I loved math, and uh, this was a good way to sort of build on my life science skills while getting into a little more computational research. Right, cool. Yeah. So what is it that makes you passionate about this field of research? Um, I think... I, mean, I shouldn't speak for other people, but I think what, what personally for me and some people that I know, what hooks us into computational neuroscience is that it allows you to have a little bit of a philosophy about the brain. Like there are a lot of kind of questions that you can try to tackle with math that are also easy to have sort of armchair theories about. And you can really, really every day as you walk around, it's constantly thinking about why, why am I doing this? Why is my brain doing this? How are other people behaving? Right. Things like that. It just kind of... The more you think about it, it kind of works its way in, <laughs> into your everyday life. Yeah. And I think that keeps me interested. That's so true. It's, it's constantly applicable, no yeah. matter what you're doing. So what is it that makes your current research important in, in the grand scheme of things? Um, so my research project doesn't have like immediate clinical applications or applications in industry or anything like that. So it's kind of a hard question, but um, we do basic research and I think maybe something that's underappreciated by people who haven't thought about this that much is, um, is how basic research, just really asking simple questions about how the world works, um, really forms a foundation for other you know, discoveries or developments that come on later that can have a sort of a big impact on the world. Yeah, it's a, it's a stepping, like a, a fundamental building block yeah. of our understanding. 
Have you seen any significant advancements in the neuroscience field since beginning your research? Because you, you said you began in your fourth year of your undergrad, but now mm-hmm. you're partway through your PhD. Have there been any major advancements that you've seen? Um, so in the past three years, to be honest, it's mainly been like playing catch up. You know, I'm mm-hmm. constantly reading, finding papers from the 90s or the 80s or whatever that seem shockingly relevant right. <laughs> today. Um, I wouldn't say there are specific like groundbreaking discoveries in the sense that some people might imagine happen. Um, but for me, there's definitely trends that I'm excited about and that I think are interesting. Hmm. So what trends are those? Um, something that I think people are getting more interested in now is um, investigating true causal relationships as opposed to correlations. In the past, people have been really focused on correlating neural responses. So the response of a brain cell to, for example, a specific stimulation mm-hmm. and correlating that with behavior and formulating theories based on those correlations. Um, in recent years, or at least in the circles that I hang out with, people seem to be a little bit more concerned about causality and not just correlation. Right. So there are a lot of techniques that are being developed, like brain stimulation, because if you go in and you stimulate the brain, For example, something like um, transcranial stimulation, which is just giving a little bit of current across the skull to a specific brain area. By stimulating the brain, you can be sure that the effects you're seeing are actually the result of uh, of your actions and that you actually understand the mechanism and you're not just, you know, witnessing a correlation or something that's not causal. Like a direct, um, a more direct method kind of? Yeah. Perturbation is like, is the word that people would use for that. And um, I think... I think there's definitely a big call for people to have more causal mechanisms and and really be more rigorous in their experiments, less hand wavy about explaining away their data. Yeah, that's great. I I wouldn't even uh, think of that. That's fantastic. Uh, So do you think you kind of say what research you've done so far, like what different projects you've had and what have been your favorites, what have been the takeaways from those? Um, the brain is really complicated. <laughs> be a big takeaway. It's pretty common for people to say that, um, you know, bef- before, uh, at, well, basically, once you're done your master's, you realize that you don't know anything. And then once you finish your PhD, you realize that nobody knows anything. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a common saying in academia. And I'd say that's kind of been my biggest takeaway right. is not nobody, like, there are a lot of really smart people make, doing really great work. But really realizing just like how incredibly complicated the brain is and mm-hmm. people people who claim they understand how the brain works most of the time are pulling the wool over your eyes because it's a really really tough problem wow interesting <laughs> do you know what you're gonna do once you finish your phd do you think you'll remain in academia um do you think you'll take it uh you know to a more medical related field or yeah do you have any ideas um, that's a, it's a tough question. Um, depending on the day, I usually answer that question differently <laughs> or who I'm talking to, but, uh, I'm pretty likely to do a postdoc if there's a cool opportunity in a cool city somewhere with work that I'm interested in. I'll, I'll probably do something like that for a year or two. Um, my second option after that would actually not be medical, but going into industry. Okay. Um, our field has a lot of overlap with sort of machine learning slash data science applications. And uh, I think for people in my lab or my fields, that's a pretty common option. More common than academia, for sure. Interesting. So would you be, um, I guess, you know, you'd obviously be employing your coding skills that you've learned through this mm-hmm. lab. Would there be any use of, like, would you be using uh, your neuroscience understanding in the machine learning field? 
Um, I think there are some opportunities. I haven't, I haven't done a lot of career research so far, but um, there are some opportunities with businesses or companies that um, actually study the brain and are using AI to do so, but that's pretty rare. I would say most likely I would end up just using general data analysis experience. Um, maybe some of the algorithms or methods that I use would cross over. Um, but the main, the main skill that I've developed is being able to read like dense technical writing and, right. and learn it quickly. So yeah, that's probably so important. my biggest strength. <laughs> we'll see when I hit the job market. Wow. So you were talking about, um, you know, more causal experiments and correlation experiments. Mm-hmm. What are some experimental techniques that you um, have seen? So you said uh, stimulation of the brain. Are there any other causal experiments that you can... Yeah, so they're mostly, mostly stimulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one that I mentioned before is called uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, which means sending current across the skull through the scalp and the skull and the hair and everything. It's kind of messy because you have to go through all these different layers. You're not sure exactly where the current's going. There are other techniques uh, that involve using um, magnetism. There's um, transcranial magnetic stimulation is another example of that. Um, Some people are actually doing in uh, brain tissue, they can do microstimulation. So they're sticking actual electrodes in and directly stimulating the cells or the tissue. Um, Lots of other examples like that. Um, I guess there's also inactivation. Some people will use um, coils, uh, sort of cooling coils in monkey brains, not humans. And you can deactivate selectively certain parts of the brain superficially and uh, make predictions about what that will do. So those are kind of examples of causal Mm -hmm. interventions that you can do. Most of them are pretty difficult. And probably (laughs) more invasive. Yeah, and a lot of them are invasive. The transcranial, and despite how scary it sounds, (laughs) it's actually not that invasive. And we actually do it to our... Not to ourselves, but to each other right, <laughs> quite right. a bit. Yeah. <laughs> neat. Very mm. neat. So what does a typical day look like for you in this, uh, you know, in this PhD life <laughs> that you're living? <laughs> um, I mean, aside from like sort of the um, administrative email stuff that I do in the morning, I usually start my day by reading uh, a few papers. So either papers, I have a gigantic backlog of papers that I'm supposed to be reading and usually I ignore that backlog and find (laughs) some shiny new paper on Twitter or something and read that. Uh, So usually a couple hours a day at least of reading papers Um, and then the rest of the day will be spent either sitting in my chair trying to figure out some math or um, implementing code that I, like implementing um, algorithms or models that I'm reading about and trying to apply it to my own data. That is so cool. Um, <laughs> some people think programming is cool. Some people don't. <laughs> I think programming is pretty cool. I think the world thinks programming is pretty cool. It's kind yeah. of the way everything's going, right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was Ben Cuthbert. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah.